Well, friends, welcome again to Catalyst Church. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to John chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Or if you have a Bible app, you can go ahead and turn it on and find John 17 is where we're going to be as we continue our series through John 17, looking at how Jesus prays for his church, how Jesus prays for his church. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable that we've come to know as the parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's the story of a father with two sons, the younger of which says to his dad, I want my half of the inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now. And the father gives it to him. And the younger son takes it and runs away and he squanders it to the point where we find in the story this younger son having run completely out of money, living in a pigsty, jealous of the food that the pigs had eaten. So this younger son had gone from the courts of his home and his dad who had all he needed to now being in a pigsty, jealous of the food that the pigs had. And in a moment of deep repentance, The younger son turns around, comes back to the father, and is embraced. And the father throws a party. It's a party that is unmatched. No other party uh, comes close to this party. The father is so overjoyed at the returning of the son that he throws a party. And everybody in the city gathers to celebrate. Everybody in the city is celebrating the return of the younger son. That is everybody except his older brother. And as Jesus paints the scene for us, he takes us to the the front porch, as it were, of this house. You can almost hear the party going on in the background. And on the front porch is the dejected son-in-law, who, or not son-in-law, excuse me, that's a different sermon. Is the dejected older brother, right? Is the dejected older brother who has said to his dad what many older brothers have said over the course of human history, dad, it's not fair. So on the front porch is the older brother and the father. It's the older brother moaning over the celebration that's being thrown over the younger brother and the dad. And Jesus says that this is what happened. This is how Jesus closes the story. And the father said to the older son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And that's how the story ends. And so Jesus, in telling this parable, leaves us with two great questions. One, did the older brother ever get over himself and go inside and celebrate the return of the younger brother? We don't know. We're not told, so we're left with the question, did the older brother ever ever come in and celebrate the finding, the, the return, the rescue, the salvation of the younger son? And the second question that we're left with is a little bit deeper. And that's, did the, did the older brother ever really know the love of the father? Did the older brother ever really know the love of the father? The question is not, did the father love him? That's obvious. The question is, did he know it? That's what I want to ask you this morning is, do you know the love of God? Do you know it? Now, my question is not, does God love you? My question is not, do you matter to God? 
My question is not, does God care deeply about you? I know the answer to all of those questions. My question is, do you know the love of God? Brennan Manning, the author of the well-titled book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, which is a great description for all Christians I know, right? The Ragamuffin Gospel says that, he says, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each one of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe that I loved you? Manning goes on to say, I dare you. I dare you to trust that God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. I dare you to trust the fact that God loves you as you are, not as you ought to be, because none of us are as we ought to be. Do you know the love of God? The more Christians I meet, the more times I ask that question, I find often that many people, many Christians, their Christianity is summed up in the phrase, I need to be like Jesus. Don't get me wrong. You need to be like Jesus. Some of you a little more than others, right? But we, yes, we need in our Christianity, we need to be like Jesus. But Christianity is not merely summed up as be like Jesus. It is also summed up, be with Jesus. It's not just do, it's be. And when Christians get their their Christianity so wrapped up in the word do and we forget be, then we get ourselves in trouble. I had a, a mentor one time, Dave Bounds, who many of you know is a dear friend of Catalyst Church. Dave Bounds sat me down one time as a young leader and he said, Jeff, I need to warn you of something. I said, yes, sir, what is it? And he said, I need to warn you that as a Christian pastor, as a, as a leader, as a Christian, when, when your, your emphasis becomes on what you're doing and not who you're being, you're in deep trouble. See, oftentimes we, we think about what, what it means to follow God, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to know the love of God, and we think about what we need to do. And Jesus is calling us back to think about who we need to be to receive the love of God. Do you know the love of God? Because you can't act on a love you don't know. And you're unlikely to act on a love that you only think you know. And so in John 17, we hear the heart of Jesus as he prays that his people might know, be secured in the love of God. Often, John 17 is referred as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's given that title because in the Old Testament, the high priest would enter into a little room, what was known as the Holy of Holies. It was the only place that that only he could go, and it represented the dwelling place with God. And when he went in there to commune with God, he would be robed in specific garments that represented the people of God. The Bible goes into painstaking detail about what the priest would wear. And what we find is that he wore clothes that represented all the people of God. And he came in under a sacrifice. And in the same way, here in John 17, Jesus, our great and our only priest, enters into the presence of God and he carries us on his shoulders. And what we find is that he himself is our priest. And he himself is our Paschal Lamb, the the one who, who was sacrificed for us. And so in John 17, he's praying for believers. He's praying for believers that we might know the love of God. John Knox, the great reformer, was on his deathbed on High Street, and he asked that the Bible be bought and read to him as he lay dying. There were a number of psalms that he wanted to be read. And and then he said, "Uh, I I want some of the prophet Isaiah to be read. And and they read to him the, the prophet Isaiah. But most of all, Knox said, please read John 17. 
Because that is the place where I first cast my anchor. I want to talk to you this morning about your knowledge of the love of God. Do you know it? Are you secure in it? Are you anchored in it? Have you cast your anchor in the love of God? And if you have, Christian, let me just ask, what's your text? What's your text that either you first threw your anchor into or that you're currently throwing your anchor into? A a, a Christian without a text is a Christian that's in danger. Where's your text? Do you know the love of God? Here's the point that I want you to get this morning. Your security in God's love towards you will determine your love towards others. Your security in God's love towards you will will determine your love towards others. If you're un- insecure, if you're unsure about your God's love towards you, you will be inconsistent in your love towards others. Your security and God's love towards you will determine your love towards others. That's what we're going to see in John 17. Jesus' first prayer in John 17 was, Father, glorify your son. His second prayer is, Father, keep them. Keep them. Don't let them go. Keep them. Now, that can either be really good news or really bad news, depending on who's doing the keeping. If God were not kind, if he were mean, if he were not kind, then the prayer to keep us would be like one captor saying to another captor, here's my prisoner, don't lose them, don't lose them. But friends, God is kind. He's unwaveringly kind. He is good. And so Jesus' prayer to keep us is not suggesting that God keep us in some sort of prison, keep us from experiencing joy, but rather that he keep us out of the prisons that we so easily create for ourselves. Father, keep them. That's Jesus' prayer. We see it there in John 17, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That title, Holy Father, is only used in John's gospel. And Jesus doesn't use it, and John doesn't use it uh, haphazardly. He points out that God is holy. He is unlike us. He is not, uh, not, not fallible or sinful like humans. And it points out that he is Father. It's reminiscent of Jesus' opening to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which are in heaven. Yes, he is our father. We ought to know this. And he is in heaven. We ought to know this. Yes, he is our father. And he is holy. When you forget that God is holy, you worship a God of your own making and your own imagination. A God who never tells you no. A God who never says that you can't do that. A God that never gives commands. He only gives general suggestions. I remember reading a book with a a CNU student a few years ago. The name of the book is What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Great book. And in one of the opening chapters, he talks about God is our righteous and holy creator. In the beginning, God created, the Bible tells us. And so God is the only righteous and the only creator. And so we've got to remember that picture of our God. God is holy. And in the book, Gilbert goes on to give sort of a mockery description of God that many people hold today. And he says, shh. We're going to knock on God's door now. Hopefully we don't wake him up. He's old now. 
and, and, and so we might disturb him. He used to get really angry, but that doesn't happen anymore. That's just the old God. Now he's always nice. We're going to knock on the door. We're going to see if we can get his attention. He's, he's, he's really nice. He just likes to hear our stories. He's, he never tells us no. He never says that's a bad idea. Really, God is thankful for any time he can get with us. And so, so Gilbert is making the point that many of us have bought into this soft, weak view of God, and we've forgotten that God is holy. I remember reading that uh, book with this young uh, CNU student, and he said, man, I really liked that description of God. And I had to stop him and say, well, bro, that's not biblical. Like, they, the, the whole point with that is that's not what God was like. And so he's like, oh, I, I started to get it. When you forget that God is holy, you begin to worship a God of your own making and your own imagination. And when you forget that God is father, then you think he's holy, but you hold him at arm's length. And you can't draw near to him. And you can't know him. Many of us know uh, people who think of God that way. Yes, he's holy, but no, I don't have any relationship with him. What in the world would that look like? Holy Father, Jesus prays, keep them in your name. Jesus says, I've revealed your name to them. They have believed in it now. Keep them in it. D.A. Carson explains that in short, Jesus prays that God will keep his followers in firm fidelity to the revelation Jesus himself has mediated to them. He has made them, he has made God known, and now God will keep them secure in it. Jesus says, God, you gave them to me to give them eternal life. I've given it to them. I've made it known to them. Now don't let them drift. Don't let them drift. Don't let them drift away from the fellowship and don't let them drift into unbelief. You've probably known believers that drifted. In fact, many of us are believers that have drifted. We've known Christians that used to sit next to us in church and we've wondered, where did they go? I know they missed a Sunday and then they missed two Sundays and then they missed three. And then where do they still go here? Do they go anywhere? Have they grown distant and drifted from the fellowship? I've never met a believer who grew spiritually healthy by distancing themselves from the local church. We've all known Christians who have drifted. And so Jesus is praying, Father, keep them. Don't don't let them drift. Don't let them drift from the fellowship. And don't let them drift from un, in, into unbelief. Don't let them drift from fellowship. I remember how my friend Algernon Tennyson used to say it. He said, the, the church ought to be like the mafia. Once you're in, it's really hard to get out. Really hard to get out. Christian, how, how quickly could the person sitting next to you or in the pew in front of you or in the pew behind you drift without you getting involved, without you calling them, without you sending a text, without you saying, where are you? They've drifted into uh, drifted from fellowship and they've drifted into unbelief. Many of us have known uh, people who have drifted into unbelief as well. They're no longer a Christian by any clear definition of what a Christian is. And so Jesus is praying, Holy Father, keep them. Holy Father, keep them. Do you understand that you will be a Christian tomorrow because of the love of God, the sovereign love of God? Now, this place doesn't come from a place of worry, right? Jesus isn't worried that God will lose us. You've probably, if you've ever had kids, you've told them to hold on to something and not lose it because you were worried that they were going to lose it, right? That's not what's going on here. 
We, we lose things all the time. Many of us have lost our car keys recently. We don't know where they are. Jesus isn't worried that God is going to lose us. Though he's aware of the enemy, he's praying from a sense of confident security. Listen to some of the phrases that Jesus has used in this prayer. Yours they were. You gave them to me. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me. Jesus' prayer that God would keep us is wrapped up in the language of love. This passage goes all the way back to John chapter 13 in which this, this episode begins to start. And John 13 begins with this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This prayer in John 17 is born in the love of John 13. Jesus, when he prays, Father, keep them, is saying, Father, keep them in your love. Jesus prays not from a sense of worry that God would lose control over some unruly prisoners, but he prays from a sense of confidence that God will keep those whom he loves. I love the imagery Jesus uses in John chapter 10. He says, you're my sheep and you're in my hands. And no one can snatch you out of my hands. No one can snatch you out of my hands. Believer, even this morning, you are resting. You are in the hands of your sovereign Christ. Is your anchor cast there? That's why we sang that Christ, the Satan, and all of that language. We are secure and anchored in the love of God. Your security in God's love towards you will determine your love towards others. Now, I told you last week that love is one of those words that we should not be allowed to use without offering a definition. And so, young ladies, I'll remind you again, when that young man bats his eyes and says to you, I love you, Stop him right there and say, hold on, boy, what do you mean? What do you mean? Right? Force it. Don't let him get another step without defining the word love. Because if he doesn't know it, it means he hasn't thought about it. And that means he's not ready for you. And you need to drop him like a bad habit. And if you don't know how to do that, I'll give you my number. And you can call me in that moment and I will do that for you. (laughs) Just my pastoral heartbeat, y'all. So what is love? So what is love? Your security and love of God. Right? Your security and love of God will determine how you love others. What is, what is love? The best definition that I've heard, it's not perfect, but it's the best one that I've heard is from Vodi Bauckham, who says, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. If you have a cell phone, take a picture of that. If you're a teenager, grab a pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, whatever you've got to write that down. You don't want to forget that. Love is an act of the will that is uh, an act of the will that is accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. It's an act of the will. It's not wishy-washy. It's not just kind of here it comes, there it goes. Love is an act of the will. It's settled. You choose it. Now, I'm not, we're not getting too far into that, but I mean you choose to set your love on somebody or you choose not to, right? Arrow did, uh, Cupid's arrow didn't just strike you and she didn't just bat her eyes, though she might have batted her eyes. Love is an act of the will, and it's accompanied by emotion. It's not void of emotion, nor is it driven by emotion. It's accompanied by emotion. Love is not the engine of the train. It's also not the caboose. It's the sidecar to the motorcycle, if it were. Sorry, I'm mixing metaphors there. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. 
It leads to action on behalf of its object. And so how do you know that God loved you? Friends, look to Christ. Look to Christ. You look to Christ crucified and you don't ever have to wonder again whether or not God loves you. He settled that question once and for all. Does God love me? Look to the cross. Does God love me? Look to the cross. Does God love me? Look to the cross. Jesus prays that you would be kept in God's love. I I, I love how uh, one theologian says it. Uh, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our own prayer life, that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Jesus is praying that for you, believer, that you may come out victorious in the end. Hebrews tells us that we are running the race of the Christian faith. And the, 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 the roads along which you run are lined with people cheering you on. And so when you walk through the hallway of your workplace or your school environment and you feel like you're the only Christian in the world, you're not alone. Christ is with you and he's praying for you. When you walk into the break room at your workplace and and, and it has gone as as immoral as possible and you feel like you're, you're, you're the only one. Christ is with you and he's praying for you. He's praying that your faith may not cease and that you may come out victoriously in the end. So come what may, let Satan throw his hottest dart. The Lord Jesus is praying for you. Do you know the love of God? Are you secure in it? Are you anchored in it? Your security in God's love towards you will influence your love towards others. It'll influence your love towards those in your workplace. It'll influence towards your love towards your spouse. It'll influence your love towards your kids or your parents. Your, your understanding and your security and God's love towards you will influence your love towards others. Now, there are two implications that I want to point out to you this morning about this. The fact that God loves us and we're more secure in that love influences two, two, two groups that we should love. Those inside the church, we should love those inside the church because we are secure in the love of God. And because we are secure in the love of God, we should love those outside the church. You say, wait a minute, Jeff. You're telling me I should love those inside the church and love those outside the church. Are you telling me I should just love everybody? You're getting it. You are picking up what I am putting down. All right? Yes. Yes, that's what Jesus is getting after. That's what Jesus is getting after. He's saying when you are secure in the love of God, you ought to love everybody you run into contact. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with everybody. That doesn't mean you affirm everything in everybody. But it means you love them. You love them. So let's look first at those inside the church. Jesus is praying that God would keep them. Who is the them Jesus is praying for the church through believers. Throughout this prayer, Jesus distinguishes believers from the world. Our elders are reading a book right now called The Deliberate Church, which helps us to think biblically and clearly about the church. What is God's intentions for the church and what should be our expectations for the church? And Mark Dever says this in that book. He says, the church is God's vehicle for displaying his glory 
to his creation. That's what the church is. It's God's vehicle for displaying his glory to his creation. And we do that by loving one another. We don't make much of Christ when we belittle those for whom Christ died. And so we love those inside the church. Jesus says in John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Friends, when you look around at the people in church, do you see people that God is keeping? He's keeping. He's got them in his hands. He's got them in his grasp. He's keeping them. He's at work in them. Do you see them? When you look at your fellow believer on a Sunday morning, do you see that God saved them before the foundation of the world, that God called them to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit and opening up, opening up their eyes to Christ and granting them repentance? Do you see that God is at work in them now, conforming them to the image of Christ and granting them repentance, faith, and a new obedience? Do you see God at work at the the people around you? A few years ago, we studied our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. And we saw all kinds of division in that church. And one of the principles we took away was that we ought to see each other as we are in Christ, not merely as we are in conflict. You ought to see other believers as they are in Christ, not merely as they are in conflict. I remember a couple of years ago, sitting down with two brothers here at Catalyst Church who were in a moment and a season of disagreement. And I sat them down and they just could not get over this disagreement. And this was the point that we went to. So do you believe that he's a Christian? Yeah, I believe that he's a Christian. Okay, do you believe that he's a Christian? Yeah, I believe he's a Christian. Okay, do you see him that way though? I know you believe that, but do you see him that way? Are you loving him that way? We ought to see other believers as they are in Christ, not as they are in our conflict. Holy Father, Jesus prays, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. He's praying that those inside the church would be so kept by God that they would love others inside the church. Have you ever met an unloving person in church? Don't look at them, right? Of course you have. Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we've been the unloving person in the church. Jesus is praying that God would keep us, that we might be one even as he and the Father are one. When you know that God is keeping you and that he's keeping others, it impacts the way that you love him. We ought to love those inside the church and we ought to love those outside the church. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The them is still the church. He's sending us. There is sending language throughout John's gospel. John chapter one, we see that the word became flesh and it was sent into the world. In John chapter three, we see that the father sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John chapter four, we see the salvation of the woman at the well who had a reputation for being incredibly loose, right? And and she goes back into her hometown and the Bible says that she was sent there and that many from that city believed because of her testimony. She was sent. John chapter nine, John chapter 10, we have the, the man born blind who Jesus heals and he goes in front of the religious leaders and he says, look, I don't know a lot of theology. This is all I know. I was blind and now I see. And with that simple testimony, God sends him 
John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. This is why we end every service at Catalyst Church with the words, you are not dismissed, you are sent. Because we are a sent people. The biblical gospel draws us into the love of the Father and then compels us out. It's, it's like, a, like a hurricane or a cyclone, right? It's going to pull you in and then spit you out. It draws you into, into God and it sends you out. In fact, one of the biblical proofs that you've been drawn into the love of God is that you're sent out to love others. If your understanding of the gospel includes a call for you to come to Christ, but it does not include a call to you to love and go to the world, it's incomplete. And so Jesus' prayer, Father, keep them. It's a missionary, it's a commissioning prayer. It's a commissioning prayer. Every time in the Bible, Jesus promises his presence to his people it's for the purpose of mission and so we ought to love those outside the church we are the missionaries we are the missionaries to them as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world i told you in luke chapter 15 that jesus tells a parable that we've come to be known as the prodigal son In that closing scene, we have the father who loves his sons, and we have the older brother who has been unwilling to celebrate, unwilling to celebrate the return of the younger son. It ends with the unfinished story of the older brother, again, on that front porch with the party in the background. You can hear the noise through the doors and the windows, and the father said to the older son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so we have two questions. Will you rejoice that your lost brother has been found? Will you rejoice that your lost brother has been found? Your father is rejoicing at the repentance of of broken people. Do you, will you give your life for this purpose? Maybe even this morning, somebody bought, the Lord bought somebody to mind. You said, man, I haven't seen them in weeks. I haven't seen them since we made the move. I, I I don't even know where they're at spiritually. Will you pick up the phone? Will you send the text message? Will you reach out to them? Will you rejoice? Will you rejoice that your lost brother has been found? And do you truly know? the love of the Father. Do you truly know the love of the Father? I want you to hear these words from your heavenly Father this morning. You are always with me. If you are in Christ, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you have done that makes him love you less. You are secure in his love. Do you know it? Do you hear him say to you, you are always with me? You're always with me. In your highest highs and in your lowest lows, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. He withholds no good thing from his children. Do you hear the voice of the Father this morning? Do you know the love of the Father? And did you hear what the Father said lastly? He said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and is now alive. In just a moment, we're going to come to the communion table and we're going to celebrate. In communion, we proclaim that Christ, our older brother, was dead and he is now alive. He wasn't dead as a prodigal who was dead in his sin, but he was dead as a substitute who died for our sin. And he is now very much alive, very much alive. Do you believe that? 
If you've never come to Christ, why not this morning? As you celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ this morning, if you've never cried out to him for salvation, why not this morning? Why not today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And because of this, we can know the love of the Father. Because of this, we can be secure in the love of the Father. And Father, being secure in your love, we can love others well. Knowing that your wrath has been satisfied, our wrath can be satisfied as well. So would you help us? Would you help us to love people well? Father, if there is anybody in this room that does not know your love for them in Christ, would you do whatever it takes to bring them to a place where they see that Jesus is a bigger Savior than they are a sinner all day long? And friends, if you're here this morning and that's you and you're saying, I don't know even where to begin with God, you just begin where you're at. and Say, God, here I am with all my faults and all my failures. But maybe for the first time, you're believing that Christ is a bigger savior than you are a sinner. Then make that your confession. So God, as we come to the table, may we come as rebels laying down our arms, as repentant prodigal sons and daughters who are coming not because we have it all together, but because we have a father who loves us at great cost to himself. May this be our prayer. Not that we've earned your love, but that you and your mercy have loved us and you will hold us fast. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.